Well, Revelation chapter 13 is where we will begin again this morning. We've been looking at chapters 12, 13, and part of 14 under the title, The Future War, or The Futile War of the Devil. It is a future war, but it is also a futile war, as we will be reminded of again this morning. We've been in this chapter for several weeks now, and, and I am actually planning on finishing up this chapter this morning before we go to the Lord's table. Now, next week, I'm going to rake over a little bit more of it because I'm not going to be able to finish talking about everything that I, I would like to share at the end of this chapter, but we will transition into, into chapter 14 next week, Lord willing. Uh, my, my only goal was that before we got into the new building, I would be out of chapters four, uh, 12, 13, and 14, uh, at least the beginning there of, of, of 14. And we may take a break for just a little bit and celebrate some other things and, and talk about what we are doing as a church. Uh, I think that would be a really important thing for us to do as a, as a church going into a new location. So uh, we'll, we'll announce that a little bit later. But halfway through this part of our study of Revelation, starting in chapter 12, that I've been calling the, the feudal war of the devil... Our attention as a people of God, as a nation, was riveted by the stunning news coming out of Afghanistan of our troops being withdrawn and the subsequent collapse of the Afghanistan government to the Taliban and the stories of violence and bloodshed and severe danger to our fellow Americans and believers and allies have caused government leadership on both sides of the aisle to question our president's wisdom and seeming lack of forethought and concern in the face of a volatile situation. And this forced uh, President Biden to face the nation and give account for what had happened. And this he did in a speech given at 3.30 in the afternoon on August 31st, less than two weeks ago. And many, many people heard the speech and they said, you know, the government's hiding things from us. They're spinning the truth. I mean, we hear that a lot, I know. But whether this assessment of the speech is accurate or not, there is at least one part of the speech that appears to be truer than what most people would like it to be. President Biden said, in April, I made the decision to end this war. As part of that decision, we set the date of August 31st for American troops to withdraw. The assumption was that more than 300,000 Afghan national security forces that we had trained over the past two decades and equipped would be a strong adversary in the civil wars with the Taliban. That assumption that the Afghan government would be able to hold on for a period of time beyond military drawdown turned out not to be accurate. And in our minds, a lot of people are thinking, well, no kidding, <laughs> not to be accurate. The assumption that the Afghan National Security Forces would be able to hold off the Taliban turned out not to be accurate. Now, I would venture to add to that statement with all due respect to the office of the presidency. I think it's obvious that the commander-in-chief and, and whoever else is involved in the decision overestimated the readiness of the Afghan National Security Forces. But I think it's also fair to say that they underestimated the strength and will and strategy of the Taliban. And I ask you, which is the larger problem? Because you can know a lot about your own strength and about your own resources and about your own abilities... 
But if you do not understand your enemy, you are going to lose the battle. And this is an essential principle, not only for generals fighting wars, but also for believers in Christ facing a real enemy. I I think what we've been talking about in Revelation 13 has been very important because Revelation 12 and 13 and all the way into 14 is the futile war of the devil because they reveal Satan's attack and his ultimate defeat. And I'll remind you about the attack. Remember really quickly, in chapter 12, Satan tries to devour the incarnate Christ. And when that fails, he tries an all-out assault on heaven itself. This seems to happen, as we saw, about halfway through the tribulation period. And when he is defeated and cast down and confined to the earth, he tries to annihilate God's chosen people, the Jews. And when God rescues them from harm in chapter 13, the devil in this blind rage calls forth the Antichrist and the false prophet to hunt down and destroy anyone who is a believer in Christ. He's going after them. And this worldwide frightening campaign led by the devil against Christians will will take place, it seems, in the final three and a half years before Christ returns to establish his kingdom. And once again, Satan will be defeated, not only because he will be ultimately cast into the lake of fire, but also because, as we read in Revelation, believers will conquer him by remaining faithful to the Lord even unto death and so escape his clutches forever into endless joy with the Lord while the devil and the false prophet are cast alive into the lake of fire. But these chapters are not just encouragement for us to know that Satan will lose in the end. They are also an essential help that we might know our enemy because the way he functions in chapter 13 is the way he functions in 2021, this day. And knowing the tactics of our enemy, the devil, is a biblical idea. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul says that he did what he did so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs, he says, his designs to defeat us and to ruin God's plan for the church. He also says in Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Literally, that's the word methods, the methods of the devil, what he has planned in his attack. And in 1 Peter 5.8, Peter warns, be sober-minded, be watchful, your devil Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And not just anyone, believers. And if there was ever a day to be sober-minded, I think it's now. If there was ever a day to be watchful, I think it's today. Do not think for a moment that Satan is at rest, that he's waiting in the wings to begin this fight in the tribulation period. No, as we've seen throughout history, looking at at, at biblical theology in this series, he's actively engaged in warfare all the time and always trying to bring about what we finally read about in Revelation. And the only thing holding him back from establishing this worldwide domination against the Lord and his people is the sovereign hand of God. So our study of Revelation 13 and the attack on believers through the the coming Antichrist and the false prophet, these, these two beasts in chapter 13, is not just to fill our knowledge about the future. What Satan will attempt to do in the future, he is striving to do right now. And we have to beware of his devious plot because it impacts us today. And that's what we've been looking at here. We've learned that Satan is always trying to mimic and twist the person and work of God to deceive the world and to lead Christians astray because Satan cannot create 
anything on his own. He's a, he's a created being like we are. He can only take what God has created and, and corrupt it and turn it on its head and try to turn it against God. For example, look how he has twisted and corrupted God's creation of marriage between one man and one woman for life. In fact, look at how he has twisted the very idea of being a man or a woman for life. And look how he does this without the world being rightfully shocked and appalled, making those who oppose the idea seem like the worst kind of uncaring, bigoted people that we would ever think that this is wrong. In fact, doing it so that even Christians are led astray by it. Do you want to know the enemy? Do you want to know what Satan is up to, what he's capable of, how he's going to come after you and attempt to defeat you and your family and your holiness and your understanding of your commitment to Christ? You are going to be confronted with a distortion of God's will for your life. It will look similar to what you thought was going to happen or what you think that God wants you to do, but it's going to be a distortion, a twisted version of it. You'll be lured away, and it will seem like you're doing the right thing if you are not aware of Satan's devious ploy to tempt you with a twisted version of what God really wants for you. I think of Genesis chapter 3 and Satan's conversation to Eve. The only thing he said to her was that if you eat this fruit, you'll, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He is not the one that put into her mind that it was good for food or that it was pleasant to the eyes. Uh, she came to that as she continued to dwell on what he had said. In fact, if you read the text, he never even tells her to eat it. He just slithers away and lets the deception work on her. And finally, she gives in. Here's what Satan does when he twists the person and work of God. We've seen this already. We've seen, first of all, that Satan mimics the kingdom of God. He's always trying to raise up a counter kingdom of darkness to rival the kingdom of light. And he can make that kingdom look very attractive, very appealing, so that our hearts are drawn away from loving the kingdom of righteousness and wanting to love the kingdom of darkness. Second, we saw last week that Satan actually mimics the essence of God. And we see that particularly in the way he copies the Trinity. Just as God sent his son into the world to redeem the world through his death and resurrection, and as the father sent the Holy Spirit to turn people to the son, so that ultimately the father is glorified, the devil in chapter 13 calls forth the Antichrist who has a mortal wound that is healed, a death and resurrection of his own. So that the world is deceived and goes after him and says, nobody's like the beast and they worship him. And he also calls forth the false prophet who encourages the world to worship the Antichrist so that ultimately they are worshiping Satan himself. This is the unholy trinity. And it teaches us that Satan is fully capable of creating a false god that people will love to worship. And once again, we must beware lest our hearts be drawn away. Be careful what you give your heart to. Be careful what you love. Be careful what you're devoted to. Satan is capable of creating very attractive rival gods that seem right and that seem just, but they are corruptions of the true God and they will lead us astray. Now, this morning, there are two more ways that Satan mimics and twists the person and work of God. And the first one, I'll, I, I, we're not going to spend really that much time on. The second one, I've got more I want to say about it, and we'll, we'll pick it up because the theme continues in chapter 14. So I'll, again, I'll, I'll come back to it. But I would like to consider these before we gather around the table. The third one is this then. 
Satan mimics the power of God. And we will see this most clearly in the chapter when we look at how the false prophet leads the world astray to worship the Antichrist. Now, for those of you who have been not following the series, maybe closely, maybe your guest with us even this morning, keep in mind that in John's vision, he, he's seeing a representation of what's going to happen on the earth. And the Bible says that. We're not just reading into it. Uh, chapter 12 already identifies the dragon in the, in the drama as Satan. Tells us outright that that's who it is he's talking about. And the beast he calls from the sea is the Antichrist, and the beast he calls from the earth is the false prophet. And the Bible itself, mostly other places of Revelation, actually identify these characters for us in the drama. And we've already taken time in previous sermons to see that. So if we can begin in verse 11 of chapter 13, this is where John says, Then I saw another beast another beast rising out of the earth as opposed to the sea. And this is, this is uh, the, uh, later on, Revelation identifies the second beast as the false prophet, using that term. And he says, it had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It mimics the lamb of God, but its voice is the voice of Satan who controls it. And he says, it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence. In other words, they're, they're, they're in tandem here the first beast being the Antichrist, and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. Uh, he's acting like the spirit, pointing to the sun. Uh, the second beast is making the world worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. But now, how does he do this? Verse 13, it performs great signs even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. This is the power of, that the false prophet, this beast from the earth, is allowed to have. Notice he performs great signs in verse 13, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. So the fire coming down from heaven is not the only sign, but it's one of the more impressive ones, perhaps. And the most sensational sign is the power this false prophet is allowed to have to give breath to this image, this idol image of the Antichrist, causing it to look like it's coming alive and speaking. It reminds us of the image in uh, Daniel 3 that Nebuchadnezzar set up where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were told to bow or burn. These signs are the main feature of the work of the false prophet. The signs he performs in the presence of the Antichrist to deceive the world into worshiping the Antichrist and ultimately Satan, as we saw earlier in, in chapter 13. Satan is garnering the, the worship from all of this. In fact, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 20, and we don't have to turn there, but uh, this false prophet is described as the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. That's what this second beast is known for. That's what the second prophet, the, the false prophet is known for. This, these signs whereby he deceives. Now, these are not random signs and wonders. He performs. Once again, Satan is mimicking something God has already done. For instance, the Lord Jesus himself, as we read in John's gospel, 
performs miraculous signs. In fact, the word signs here and the word John uses for signs, say mea, is the same word. Jesus performs these miraculous signs to which he pointed to himself as the resurrected one who is coming to bring life, calling people to believe in him and to be saved. But the false prophet performs signs for one purpose only, to deceive the world into giving worship to somebody else, the Antichrist, and to cause believers in Christ to be killed. That's what the text says. Furthermore, two signs, or the two signs that are especially mentioned here, and that's calling down fire from heaven and giving animation to this idol, they remind us of the power of the Lord's two witnesses. In Revelation chapter 11, going back a couple of chapters, but a few months, uh, Revelation chapter 11 verse 5 says, and if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. And and this was sort of a, a, a reminiscence of what Elisha had done. And when the beast from the abyss, the Antichrist, arises and kills these witnesses, their bodies were left to lie in the streets for over three days. And Revelation 11.11 says, after the three and a half days, a breath, a pneuma of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And in turn, the false prophet gives a pneuma, it's the same word, to the image of the beast. On the one hand, the God of heaven gives the breath of life to those who, uh, to to inanimate people who had died. uh, I should say the the false prophet gives this this breath of life to these inanimate uh, objects to to walk around. And and God gives a breath to inanimate people, those who have died, to continue to serve and then to be caught up into heaven. And it's uncertain whether these are actual supernatural events the false prophet is allowed to perform or if it's a trick. Because verse 14 says, by the signs, it deceives. So we're not sure if he's really pulling this stuff off. But in either case, under the control of Satan, this false prophet has great power. So convincing will be this display of power in making the image of the beast move and speak that the Christians who are not persuaded to worship the image will be killed, either by law, as in the days of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or perhaps they'll be killed by others who are fiercely loyal to the Antichrist. We're not sure. He doesn't elaborate here. But Jesus warned his disciples that this day would be coming. In Matthew 24, Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders. And notice it's in the plural here. Remember what we've said? That that there's Satan's always trying to bring this person to light. And finally, the person par excellence will come from Satan. And he says that he will be such a deceiver He may even lead astray, if possible, the elect, those who believe in Christ. The Apostle Paul, talking about the same time period, says in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Now, what do we do with this knowledge of the devil's power? Should we be concerned Yes, we should be concerned. Remember what Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8? Be sober-minded, be watchful, looking around. 
Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and heavenly places. So yes, we should beware the power of the devil, but we should never fear that power. The devil is always seeking to exercise power in this earth and deceive people. He works through governments. Remember, he's always trying to set up a counter kingdom. He will do whatever he can to push a culture to call good what the Bible says is evil. And he will always cause people to celebrate the evil and punish the people of God because they will not go along with it. We talked about this in this series. You say, well, you know, we don't always see that in the U.S. You know, Christians have gotten along pretty well. It's, it's because in our history, in our culture, there's more of us than there is of them. More God-fearing people or more people who are just neutral and they don't want to see things go that way than there are of them. But let the tables turn. Let the ratio Uh, go the other direction and we'll see the same thing that's happening in any other country on this earth if the scripture is true who who where where the believers are in the vast minority and you see the persecution coming to this country do you sense this this powerful purposeful opposition to righteousness in our country right now I, I, I don't know if it's just me. I just feel like it's getting worse. It's, the pressure is coming even worse. This lemming-like rush to abandon the morality that is based upon the Bible and to embrace all of the sins that make a society immoral and worthy of God's judgment. Are you starting to feel alienated because you can't believe how people are thinking? It's like, have they lost their minds? Satan is empowering his allies. But we don't fear because Satan has no power of his own. Remember this principle. He's only taking what God has created and twisting it. He has no power of his own. He's a created being. He can only copy and mimic and twist real power that belongs to God. Do you know what John, the author of Revelation, says in his first letter? He says, by this you know the Spirit of God Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming in the future and now is in the world already. In other words, there's always an Antichrist that that, that Satan's trying to raise up. And then he says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than than he who is in the world. Grab onto that phrase and memorize it and do not let it go. The, the one in you, the indwelling Christ, the indwelling Holy Spirit is far greater. This is an understatement, actually. He's greater than anyone, including the devil, who is in the world. The display of power that the false prophet and the Antichrist public relations uh, manager, that's the false prophet, pulls off to deceive the world and, and, and make them run after a false Christ that, that event that's going to happen in the tribulation period, I think believers are going to be quoting this scripture then. He who is in you is greater than that. And he who is in you is greater than any attack of the devil we can experience in our world. That's a promise backed by the true power of God. And we should be encouraged as believers in Christ. 
even though we see this pressure coming, that God's got this, and he has us, and he has the real power. Now, I want to move on. There's one more way that Satan mimics and twists the person and work of God that should cause us to beware. Satan mimics the kingdom of God and the essence of God, in particular Trinity, and he mimics the power of God. And finally, Satan mimics the seal of God. The seal of God. Now, what is the seal? Well, when we value something, we want to say, that's mine. We want to put our stamp on it, our mark on it somehow. I've purchased a lot of books over the years. If you know any pastors or you've been a pastor, you know what that's like, okay? When you get Amazon at your door, it's like Christmas, you know? Uh, it's like, what did I order? I even forget sometimes, you know? And then I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right, you know? I, I met my first ESV study Bible. I actually bought it for myself because I had a good price on it at a conference. And I, Rena remembers this. I wrapped it and put it under the tree. And then I opened it on Christmas morning. It was the only time I've ever given myself a present. But I was so excited to have that, that Bible. Uh, and, and so I, I, I purchased these books. And so I, I typically take an, a nice black permanent marker and I write my name on one or two of the pages in the front of the book. You know, I write it on a couple of pages, some of these theology books, in case somebody tries to you know, rip out that page. But then it occurred to me later on, I think my brother brought me to this understanding. He's like, Greg, get a grip. Who's going to want that book anyway? You know? <laughs> so I, uh, but you know, if you loan it out, you want it to come back, but you mark it because it's yours. And we do that for stuff all the time. We, we write our names and initials on books or clothing or sports equipment. I've seen initials and names on dinnerware that comes to the church, you know, when we have our meals together, because you want your dish back. I mean, that's totally understandable. We, we claim ownership of things we value. Well, so does God. He claims ownership of things he values. The Apostle Paul says that if we are believers in Christ, if we have embraced the gospel and are saved, God the Father puts his seal on us, namely by giving us the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 1.22 says that God has also put his seal upon us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. What's the guarantee? You're mine. I love you. I'm never letting go of you. God does this. It's the kind of thing that husbands and wives say to each other when they exchange rings at the wedding ceremony. That ring says, I belong to somebody. Paul says in Ephesians 1.13, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Well, in Revelation 7, remember, there's another seal mentioned for believers we were in this passage at the end of January, actually, in the beginning of February. In Revelation chapter 7, John is taken to a time in the tribulation right before the intense judgments start happening, right before the persecution of believers comes. And before anything happens, Revelation 7 says, God sets a mark, a seal on those who belong to him. And in Revelation 7 verse 3, the cry goes out to the four judging angels who are just holding back the judgments and ready to let them unleash. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads, notice. In the rest of the chapter, the seal is on 144,000 Jewish believers who represent those on earth who place their faith in Christ during the final days before Christ comes. There'll be more than 144,000 of them who are saved. We see some of them in, in the text, actually. 
but they're, they're mainly Jewish believers, it seems, because they're from 12 tribes and 144,000 of them. Well, this seal on the forehead has a practical function also. In Revelation 9, 4, when the demon locusts are released upon the earth, remember that terrible passage? to inflict this pain and suffering on humans. It says they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And the next time we meet these 144,000 believers, it's actually at the beginning of chapter 14, which is we're going to get to next week, Lord willing, where it says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Each time the forehead is mentioned. Now, I don't know if this is a visible mark on believers during the, pre- the tribulation period. My guess is, is that it's a mark or a seal that's visible to God. It may be visible in the, the, the new earth forever because it mentions it again in Revelation 20. We'll, we'll go there later on. But it's at least something that God knows about where our, 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 our mark is set upon these people in the tribulation period. Nevertheless, uh, this is another opportunity for Satan to mimic and twist something wonderful and precious that God has done for his own. And we see that starting in Revelation 13, verse 16. It says, And it, that is the beast, the false prophet, it causes all, and notice, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. And then he says, this calls for wisdom. No kidding. (laughs) What does this mean? Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. I'm sorry, but if there's one subject I struggled with in school, it was mathematics. So, Um, I'm not going to calculate the number of the beast this morning, but we are going to calculate it next Lord's Day, okay? So we'll talk about that in more detail. It comes uh, in verse 1 of chapter 14, where those who belong to the Lamb, we just looked at this chapter a second ago, have his name and the Heavenly Father's name written in their foreheads. So, So you have this mark of the beast, and the very next verse... Remember, John's not writing chapters. They were added much later on. The very next verse after the mark of the beast is this mention that these 144,000 also have a seal in their foreheads. There's, a, there's an antithesis here. There's a, there's a taking what God has done and twisting it. Now, what are some of the features of this mark of the beast that mimics the seal of God? Well, first of all, the mark of the beast is not this loving seal set upon those who are valued because they've embraced something wonderful. The mark of the beast is forced upon people in order to expose those who will not worship the beast, the Antichrist, and swear allegiance to him. And we know that the mark is forced upon people because if you look at verse 16 here, it says that he causes people to have this mark. Literally, he makes everyone take the mark. And his government is able to track those who do not have the mark by simply preventing them from buying and selling. Think about for a minute, we, we take buying and selling for granted. 
But think about how drastic your life would change in a world driven by commerce if you were not allowed to make or spend money all of a sudden. We know that the mark is associated with the worship of the beast too. Because not only is the worship of the beast in the context, but every time after this that the mark of the beast is mentioned, it directly associates the mark with the worship of the beast or the Antichrist. Revelation 14, 9. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, notice the, the worship and the mark at the same time. Revelation 16, 2. The people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. And in Revelation 20, verse 4, John also mentions those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. And this mark is universal. No one escapes having to say yes or no to the mark of the beast. The false prophet causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, slave and free, to take the mark. Every social and political and financial class. This is worldwide. And one other thing I want to call your attention to this morning about this mark of the beast is that it is not an invisible mark. Now, the seal of God may be something invisible. I, we just don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't give us a lot of information. But the word used for mark is a different word for, than seal. It's karagma. It, it means an indelible mark. In, in one passage, it's even used to mean statue. It's something visible. It's a stamp or an engraving. It might even be a kind of tattoo. You know, and here we start extrapolating all these ideas of what it could be. And you I mean, just look up some websites and you'll find all kinds of ideas of what that mark of the beast could be. I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit uh, next week. We're not going to look at websites. Uh, but, but, but I want to talk a little bit about what it is. For example, contrary to popular belief among a lot of Christians right now, I am quite certain that the mark of the beast is not a face covering. Okay, I want you to know at least that. Nor is it, are you ready for this? It is, it is most likely not the COVID-19 vaccination, okay? I, I want to put your mind at ease about that in case there was any doubt. And, and at the same time, however, recent political events, think about this, recent political events have at least made us aware that it is not beyond the government's reach, even in a constitutional republic like ours, to demand that we accept and submit to some physical change if we are going to keep our jobs or be allowed to go into places of buying and selling. So if anybody thinks some of these things are far-fetched, think again. This could easily happen if in America is even in existence when this happens. And next, Lord, today, I want to probe this mark of the beast further when we pick up our study in chapter 14 because there's some other observations I want to make. But this morning, because I want to get to the table here, I just want you to see this contrast between the Lord's seal and Satan's mark. The one, having a loving, the one being a loving act of ownership, promising eternal life. The other, a violent threat associated with false worship, a means of control, a means of discovering and destroying those who follow the Lamb. It's the mimicry of the devil. Taking something wonderful that God has created and changing it into something terrible and threatening. And it should not escape our notice this morning that when we observe the table, we are recognizing and celebrating the fact that we who know Christ have been sealed by him. If you're a believer this morning, we're, we're coming to the table, we're observing the elements as sealed by the Holy Spirit, believers. 
Because the table is not just a trip down memory lane. We're we're at least remembering the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But that's not all we're doing. We're identifying ourselves with his death and resurrection. And we're identifying ourselves with everybody else who was identifying with his death and resurrection. That's the purpose of the table. In other words, when we become a believer in God, God says by giving us his spirit, you are mine. And he seals us in that way. When we come to the table, we are saying back to God, thank you. I am yours. And I'm going to endeavor to live my life as yours. But we have to beware because the plan of the enemy is to cause us to be marked by something else. And even though we are not facing the mark of the beast, the devil would be pleased for us to be marked by the world in some way, the world's values, the world's lusts the world's way of thinking, what the world loves. How we identify ourselves by the way we live and the choices we make has a tremendous way of saying to the world and to one another, this is who I am. This is how I am marked. So when we come to the table this morning, we are declaring our identity in Christ and we commit ourselves to that identity, asking for God's grace to help us keep faithfully serving him through our holiness, through our separation from the world. Let's pray that we live out the sealing of God, not as a mockery, not as a twisting, not as a mimicry, but purely the way God designed it. Father, thank you.